Hello, friends. In honor of the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, the National Constitution Center is launching a crowdfunding campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar you give to support We the People will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match up to a total of $234,000. Right now, we have 91 donations from 24 states for a total of $14,407.90. Let's keep the donations coming. It would be wonderful to have support from all 50 states. We don't yet have any donations from Alabama, Alaska, or Arkansas. So if you're a listener in one of those states, it would be so wonderful if you would consider donating $5, $10, or more. It's a great opportunity to show your support of constitutional education. Please go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people. That's all one word, all lowercase. Now on to today's show. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last spring, President Biden issued an executive order to form the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States a bipartisan commission charged with examining proposals for Supreme Court reform. The commission submitted its report to the president just last week. Joining us to unpack that report and discuss proposals for reforming the Supreme Court are two of the distinguished legal scholars who served on the commission. Tara Lee Grove is the Charles E. Tweedy Jr. Endowed Chairholder of Law and the Director of the Program in Constitutional Studies at the University of Alabama School of Law. Tara, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. And Keith Whittington is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton. He is the author of Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, and Constitutional Leadership in the U.S. Keith, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into Chapter 2 of the report, which examines proposals to expand or otherwise alter the current structure of the court. Tara, tell us about the arguments expressed by supporters and opponents of expanding the court and what your view is. Right. So the the chapter two goes through and and discusses both the legality first of court expansion and and says, you know, Congress has changed the size of the Supreme Court many times from 1789 um, until really the late 19th century. And so the report concludes that Congress has the power to expand the court. And then the question becomes a matter of policy. So the arguments in favor of court expansion say this is a unique political moment in American history. After Senate Republicans blocked Merrick Garland, Neil Gorsuch was put on the U.S. Supreme Court. Some people view that as a stolen seat. There are also concerns surrounding the confirmations of Justices Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett for for many people in our society. And they say that such actions require a response. And a response would be to put more justices on the Supreme Court under this view to balance the Supreme Court There's also some concern about the future direction of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence that is expressed by proponents of court expansion. Opponents of court expansion that who call it court packing say this would be detrimental to our constitutional order. It would subvert judicial independence, harm judicial legitimacy, and also 
give the political branches a power over the federal judiciary that could be deeply dangerous in our society. One does not have to believe that if court packing happened right now, it would be deeply dangerous to assume that in the long term, giving the political branches this kind of power could be deeply dangerous. And so we have two sides, one arguing for what they perceive as balance and the other arguing for longer term constitutional concerns. Thank you for that judicious summary of the positions. Keith, you expressed your views on this position in the Wall Street Journal. You wrote in a piece called Court Packing is Discreditable as Ever that it's still a bad idea and should be pushed back to the margins of political life. Other commissioners have expressed different views. Lawrence Tribe and Nancy Gertner wrote after the report came out in the Washington Post that we started out leaning toward term limits for justices, but against court expansion and ended up doubtful about term limits, but in favor of expanding the size of the court. Give us a sense of the debate within the commission uh, that led people to change their minds and, and then and then why you believe that court packing is a bad idea. Well, I think you're seeing in public now some of the uh, disagreements that existed on the commission itself as we uh, grappled with these ideas. There are those who are on the commission who thought that court packing would be justified under current circumstances. Um, Larry Tribe and Nancy Gertner were certainly uh, among those and have ably staked out their position in public at this point as to why they think um, at the end of the day that's the right judgment to make. Part of our charge as a commission was not necessarily to make recommendations to the president, but to try to lay out uh, what the different considerations were. So the president is well informed about um, the range of reform options and the perceived pros and cons um, of those reform options. That made it a little easier to come to some agreement um, across the commissioners as to how to structure the report because we weren't asked at the end of the day to take a vote, for example, as to whether or not we thought um, expanding the court would necessarily uh, be a good idea. But instead, our charge was primarily to try to explain to the president what the arguments for uh, pro and con actually were. Personally, I certainly come down on the con side of that debate. I think it would be uh, far better not to uh, go down this road of trying to expand the size of the court. Uh, I do think that this is very much going to be affected by one's judgment about what the current situation is with the court, both how troubling were the course of the Senate confirmations of nominees um, over the last few years, but also um, how does one assess the court's uh, jurisprudence and how uh, troubling you might think it is. But for me, a core concern of this is that the bar for undertaking this kind of project has just got to be extremely high, uh, because I think once we open this door, especially under current circumstances where there is a serious party competition and uh, we go back and forth between uh, who controls Congress, that if one uh, narrow majority were to uh, expand the size of the court during one Congress, you should very much expect that uh, a subsequent partisan majority is going to uh, respond in the same way. Um, and, and in the long term, that's uh, going to seriously undermine uh, the ability of the court to do the kind of job that we want it to do within our constitutional system. Tara, I think it's worth one more beat on the question of court expansion because it was an impetus for the commission being called. In your scholarship, you've talked about the structural safeguards of federal jurisdiction and described the ways that over the course of history, the executive branch has tried to limit the effects of Congress's encroachments on the Supreme Court's power. Did that history inform your views on the court expansion 
question and, and tell us also about aspects of the debate, which included the very nature of what creates legitimacy in the Supreme Court itself. Right. So I, I've studied uh, not only the history of jurisdiction stripping, but also the history of uh, attempts at court packing or court expansion. And I, I've studied the, the development of the norm against court packing, which we had, which was actually a very strong norm up until I published a piece in, in 2018. And I think um, that matters a great deal. Now, it's interesting, the executive branch has been more opposed to things like jurisdiction stripping, um, but more in favor historically of things like court packing. And that actually makes a good deal of sense. The president is in charge of nominating justices. So if there are more justices to nominate, the president is going to have a tremendous influence over the development of the U.S. Supreme Court. If Congress takes away federal jurisdiction, that actually gives the president less influence because a lot of the president's influence over the federal judiciary, um, as as I've written, also as, as Keith has written, um, a lot of the president's influence comes through litigation. And so the president tends to want the federal courts to have jurisdiction. Um, and historically, at least, some presidents were more pro-packing the Supreme Court because they could do so in a way that would enhance their own power. But presidents haven't tried to do that in a very long time. We've had nearly a century of a norm against court packing. And I think that's been crucial for the federal judiciary. I don't think people understand what the stakes were in 1937. Um, and I think it's important when we think about our current political moment to look back at 1937. This was a time when the country was in the middle of the Great Depression. People were deeply suffering. It was an economic crisis. And to Roosevelt, it was also a constitutional crisis. Roosevelt believed that the federal government not only had the power, but had the responsibility to help people in this national economic crisis and the Supreme Court seemed to be standing in the way. President Roosevelt not only wanted to expand the court, he had a, a Congress that was controlled, dominated by Democrats. Over 70% of the House of Representatives and the Senate was controlled by the Democratic Party. I emphasize all of this because this was a time, if there was ever a time when the court would be expanded, that it would be expanded. And yet, the president's own party, or at least prominent members of the president's own party, said no. Now, people are going to disagree over why they said no. There's a lot of scholarship on this point. But I think it's a really important historical point that at a moment when the country probably could have justified court packing the most, the country nonetheless said no. Um, and I do want to get back to your earlier question. Um, if you can't tell, I, I am one of the commissioners that was opposed to court expansion. I probably came into it with a lot of skepticism toward that particular reform. Um, my, own, my own views actually uh, hardened more against court packing during the course of the eight months that we were on the commission as I watched things, uh, developments in the country. I, I think it would be a very dangerous reform right now. Keith Whittington, tell us about the lessons of 1937 for you. The report, its very rich historical section, notes that scholars disagree about the magnitude and cause of the doctrinal shifts that followed the president's failed efforts to pack the court. And tell us also how and if your views about court expansion changed in any way based on the deliberations of the commission, which reported interesting findings, including how the Supreme Court derives its legitimacy. So tell our listeners what else they should look for in the report that might be relevant to shaping a view on, on court packing. 
Yeah, so in, in 37, or, or at least by the time of 37, the Roosevelt administration, of course, had been in place since Franklin Roosevelt's first inauguration in 1933 and had encountered a lot of obstruction from the U.S. Supreme Court for really central provisions of the New Deal policy the administration was trying to advance when Roosevelt and the Democrats were extremely successful uh, in the 1936 election and build up their, built up their majority um, even more. Roosevelt then, uh, somewhat surprisingly, through his support behind proposals that uh, had been advanced by some uh, Democrats in Congress uh, during his first term of office um, of expanding the size of the court. And um, while Roosevelt initially uh, suggested this was uh, entirely politically neutral, um, just uh, in order to help the court keep up with its workload and be useful if there were additional justices, um, uh, that was pretty quickly abandoned um, and the administration was quite straightforward um, that really what they wanted were justices that would agree more with the administration and change the direction um, of the court's uh, jurisprudence. That did lead to a, a surprisingly bitter fight, I think surprising given um, uh, how overwhelming the uh, power of the Democrats were at the time. In part, there were many Democrats um, in Congress who were very concerned that uh, that kind of court packing measure would tend to increase presidential power in particular. And so um, part of the objection uh, was focused precisely on the extent to which this would help empower presidents at a time in which uh, people were already very concerned about growing presidential power during uh, the New Deal in the, in the 1930s. And so that made a lot of people nervous and helped to support uh, rejecting uh, the plan. There's also a concern about the future of an independent judiciary and whether or not it could continue to do its work um, over time if you uh, were willing to manipulate the size of the court in order to try to get the outcomes that you wanted through uh, the judicial process. The whole thing uh, wound up becoming at least um, easier when uh, the court um, started upholding uh, New Deal measures. And they started doing that fairly dramatically uh, right in the midst of the debate over court packing. And this has given rise to um, a longstanding scholarly debate um, over the extent to which the court packing debate itself uh, influenced the justices uh, to uh, make this uh, turn um, or whether or not they'd independently come to the conclusion that they ought to be more supportive of some of these uh, New Deal measures. Um, but the results um, that emerged out of 37 was Roosevelt didn't get his court packing plan. Um, the court stayed at nine justices. The Senate Judiciary Committee uh, in particular issued an extremely strong report um, denouncing court packing um, as a threat to the constitutional system and not something we should ever repeat um, again. But at the same time, um, conservative justices started retiring from the court and gave uh, Roosevelt opportunities to uh, change the direction of the court through the normal appointments process. And the court became uh, much more accommodating to New Deal policies as a consequence. It is remarkable the extent to which that debate in 1937 has really shaped perceptions um, among academics and the political elite um, about the legitimacy of court packing, the appropriateness of court packing as policy. I found it quite remarkable that in a very short period of time, uh, we've mainstreamed this view in ways that I never would have expected uh, 10 years ago, for example. Uh, mainstreamed it to such a degree that we needed a Supreme Court commission um, appointed by the president uh, in order to evaluate these kinds of arguments. And I doubt that the work of the commission has sort of taken this off the table as firmly as the uh, 37 Senate Judiciary Committee report um, uh, did. I suspect we will continue um, having debates about um, court packing and the appropriateness of engaging in court packing um, in coming years now that we've put it on the table um, to the degree that we uh, have. Well, let's turn to chapter three involving term limits uh, for the Supreme Court. 
The commission report noted that, quote, when the National Constitution Center organized separate groups of conservative scholars and progressive scholars to draft their own proposals for improving the Constitution, both groups concluded that Supreme Court justices should be limited to 18-year terms. At the same time, the commission notes the arguments against term limits, including the claim that term limits would further politicize the Supreme Court and would heighten the belief that justices are allies of the president and the president's party. Tara, give us a sense of the nature of the debate on the commission about term limits. The commission did conclude that probably they'd have to be enacted by constitutional amendment, not by statute, and maybe even start by telling us how would it work? The, the, the commission describes how an 18-year term limit amendment might be drafted and implemented. How might it be drafted? And then tell us about the debate over it and, and whether or not you would support such an amendment. Well, it's extraordinarily complicated. I will say, I think there needs to be a constitutional amendment. And I think other commissioners um, came to that conclusion as well. The report itself doesn't come to a firm conclusion on that point. Um, the report offers how it could be done by constitutional amendment, then acknowledges that in the view of at least some members of the commission, uh, it can be done by by federal statute. Um, that is not my view, but I just want to be clear that the report is not um, decisive on that on that matter. So the logistics are extraordinarily difficult. I think for most of us, if we were designing a system from scratch, we would limit the terms of justices. We would not give them uh, terms that we call, it's, it's technically not life tenure, right? The Article 3 says during good behavior, and that has come to be understood as life tenure absent impeachment. But once you have that system, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to change. Um, so even if we did it by constitutional amendment, the question becomes, what can the constitutional amendment look like? I think for some folks, it, it feels uncomfortable to have the constitutional amendment apply to current justices. The idea is when they were when they were nominated to their positions, they assumed they would have life tenure. And so one possibility is to leave that in place and have 18-year terms come over time. But if you do it that way, it takes decades, I think it's on the score of 40 to 50 years, before an 18-year term limit can get into place. So it takes an extraordinarily long amount of time. And yet, if you apply it to current justices, that obviously creates a real political problem because people think about the, the identities of the current justices rather than kind of the long-term future of the Supreme Court. I also want to note another logistical problem, and I suspect Keith will, will have thoughts on this as well. One of the arguments for term limits is that it will decrease the politicization of the judiciary because presidents will have an opportunity to to, to nominate two justices, each presidential for your term, um, and this will kind of lower the temperature. The idea is that if we even things out and as presidents change, each one gets a, um, gets a stab at affecting the Supreme Court, everything will be better. And I'm not sure that's right. Um, I do worry if every single presidential election becomes about the U.S. Supreme Court, that could increase the politicization of the judiciary and increase the temperature surrounding the Supreme Court because every presidential election will then focus on the U.S. Supreme Court. And 18 years is still a long time. So if a president get if we're, we're dealing with Supreme Court nominations every two years, I think that could make things a lot worse. We're, we are now in a period where we have had Supreme Court nominations almost all the time since 2016, right? We forget how long it was 
um, in the 1990s and early 2000s where we didn't have any Supreme Court nominations at all. And that can happen in a system of, of life tenure. It cannot happen in a system of term limits. And there's something to be said for uh, a little bit of haphazardness and randomness when it comes to the selection of justices. All this is to say, from my own perspective, as a policy matter, uh, term limits would be great starting from scratch and are just extraordinarily complicated in a system that has not had them. Keith, as Tara says, it's very complicated to draft an amendment. Our National Constitution Center drafting teams will attempt to do just that when they come to Philadelphia in May of 2022 to hold a virtual and in-person constitutional convention and see if they can come up with a language for an amendment. But just reading the report, I would have trouble quickly summarizing what such an amendment would look like. The report notes that the amendment would have to make choices about the, when the amendment would take effect, the timing of appointments, how to fill seats that become vacant due to retirement. There are three options for that, as well as designing the transition to fixed-term appointments. Can you, as simply as possible, explain basically what the amendment would look like if folks were inclined to propose one, and then tell us whether or not you would support it? Yeah, I think it is uh, extraordinarily complicated to come up with uh, what a detailed plan would actually look like to create a term limit. So notably, of course, that would be true whether it could be done by statute or by constitutional amendment. I lean toward thinking you would need a constitutional amendment um, to do it as well. The the report does try to walk through um, uh, what the legal arguments are as to whether or not this could be done by statute. And one thing that the commission report in general tries to do is make sense of what the legal concerns are with various kinds of reform proposals. Uh, one thing that's different about the term limits uh, chapter compared to the court expansion chapter is that there's um, a pretty broad agreement um, in the commission as well as outside the commission that court expansion can be done through simple statute. Um, you don't need a constitutional amendment in order to uh, do that. Uh, term limits, on the other hand, is a much dicier affair as to whether or not you could do it uh, through statute. And, and so there's a, a lot of thinking that you would need some form of constitutional amendment. But regardless of how you tried to do it, it would be very complicated to design. And part of the question about the complication design goes to fundamental questions about what you're trying to accomplish with uh, term limits. But some of it, I think, is simply uh, embedded in uh, the complexity of trying to design uh, this kind of reform uh, mechanism. There, of course, are, are is a very fundamental decision that has to be made about uh, how long of a term a justice uh, should serve and whether or not that term ought to be uh, renewable. At the state level, we have a lot of instances of limited terms. Primarily, state constitutions impose limited terms of office uh, for Supreme Court justice. Um, in some cases, that can be renewed. Um, in some cases, they cannot. Um, at the federal level, when we're looking at the U.S. Supreme Court, um, the tendency has generally been, and that's true of the commission report as well, um, to adopt a very long term of office, um, 18 years, much longer than what is true at the at the state level, but one that's sort of consistent with what the historical practice has actually been about how long justices, um, in fact, have served on the Supreme Court. And then if you're going to have a very long term like that, then the assumption is you're not going to um, allow renewal. So um, there's no option of a second term. But that opens up um, all kinds of, of complications after that. What do you do with justices after they complete their uh, term of office, for example? How much should you worry about what their uh, post-judicial career is going to look like? And does that affect um, how they might behave uh, while they're on the court? Um, and so one basic question that has to be asked if you um, adopt 
term limits is can you restrict what justices will do after they leave office with a with a goal of uh, trying to um, affect their behavior uh, while they're on the court. Um, one of the challenges is trying to think about um, uh, what that appointment process looks like to fill those vacancies. Unfortunately, we're already experiencing a situation where there could be very long vacancies on the court because of political polarization and disagreements between the Senate and the president over a suitable nominee. Um, and uh, we may well be entering a phase in which uh, those kinds of extended vacancies because of disagreements between the Senate and the president uh, become quite common and and those vacancies could last um, for quite uh, some time. So uh, imagine the Merrick Garland situation, but magnified in the future. That becomes a really problematic uh, feature for us, but it's uh, even more problematic if you're pursuing this kind of term limit approach uh, where the goal precisely is to give each president a predictable set of nominees to make. If you don't deal with the confirmation process um, as part of that, you can instead find the Senate and the president deadlocked, um, unable to come to any agreement. And then you've uh, screwed up the entire thing you're trying to do, which was to regularize the process of appointments. Um, I think one of the real challenges to any kind of term limit um, amendment or statute um, is uh, how do you deal with the confirmation process? How do you ensure um, that you don't have a, a series of vacancies just piling up as the Senate and the president disagree? And if an important goal of uh, the term limit process um, is to guarantee that each president's going to get a fixed number of justices on a fixed schedule, um, if you can't solve the confirmation uh, problem, then you haven't done uh, what it is you were trying to accomplish uh, through term limits in the first place. And I have to say that that element of it in particular um, has made me very skeptical um, about term limits as a solution. I was uh, weakly skeptical about term limits. It often seemed like a solution in search of a problem. From my perspective, it wasn't obvious uh, what it was people thought they were trying to accomplish uh, through term limit proposals. Um, but the more I look at the um, uh, challenges of how do you get um, justices actually confirmed in our current environment and what the implications are for a term limit system, the more skeptical I am about um, designing that kind of system and thinking it might accomplish the goals uh, people have for it. Um, I suspect that if you really want to do it, you'd have to radically redesign uh, the confirmation process um, as well. It's not enough just to cap term limits, but you'd have to start thinking about things like, would we even have Senate confirmation or could the president simply put whoever they want um, on the court um, so you solve this problem of deadlock, but you've uh, dramatically expand presidential power to afflict um, uh, justice uh, by going down that route. So it's a, it's a complicated problem. And unfortunately, um, it, to some degree, it's a complicated problem for us anyway, <laughs> because a core feature of the complication is this confirmation dilemma that I think we're going to face regardless. Tara, I think this is worth another beat. If you were advising our progressive libertarian and conservative constitution drafting teams who will be reconvening in May to try to draft a term limits amendment, what did you learn from the commission deliberation? Keith just identified a host of complexities, which make it sound pretty pretty tough to draft a term limits amendment. Did the commission discuss the possibility of outlining an amendment and then delegating to Congress the power to work out the details? Or if the goal is to get to some kind of agreement, what did you learn and, and what can you advise? Well, I think chapter three of the report actually does a pretty good job of describing in detail 
both different ways of doing it and also the various hurdles that one faces and, and has, to, has to address. I think that Chapter 3 actually lays out a pretty good roadmap for any member of Congress who wanted to design or a constitutional amendment or any anyone at the National Constitution Center who wanted to try to design a constitutional amendment because they'd realize, wait, it's not just about current versus future justices. It's not just about 12 versus 18 years. It's also about the confirmation process. And I think the amendment might actually have to say there are certain time limits on when the Senate can consider a nominee. One of the challenges, as as Keith was alluding to, is making sure there's a functional confirmation process without giving too much power to the president. And that's something I'm not sure how to design via a constitutional amendment, how to limit the power of the president, because we clearly don't want a situation where the president nominates someone and they just sit in limbo for years and years and years if there is a Senate of the other party. But we also don't want a situation where the president knows, well, if I nominate two people and they have to accept number three, then I can just nominate a couple of people the Senate will never never confirm. And then I get my real choice for number three kind of guaranteed. And I think that's extremely difficult. Now, it would be nice if we could count on having the country elect presidents in the future who would always exercise good judgment in selecting judicial nominees, and then we wouldn't have to worry about this. But history has shown us we cannot always count on that. And so I think we have to be pretty wary of presidential power. And I think this is yet another hurdle that we face in designing a new system. We the People relies on the support of listeners like you to provide nonpartisan constitutional education to Americans of all ages. Every dollar you give to support We the People will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match up to a total of $234,000. That campaign is made possible by the John Templeton Foundation. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people. That's constitutioncenter.org slash we the people, all one word, all lowercase. Thank you so much for your wonderful passion, engagement, and support. And back to the show. Keith, you've identified some of the complexities of a term limits amendment. And as Tara says, uh, presidents have not behaved like angels in the past and have often uh, put up nominees they expected to be rejected so they could get their second choices. So what would you say to the conservative and progressive teams of the Constitution Center? And of course, this is not, we, we have no institutional position. We're just convening these teams. Uh, what would you say to the teams that have voted tentatively in favor of an amendment to try to change their mind and, and get them to abandon the project? Well, I think I would uh, try to focus people's attention very much on the confirmation process and force people to really grapple with what we're confronting when it comes to trying to get judges confirmed. Um, We've had now almost three decades in which the Senate obstructs presidential um, appointees uh, to the judiciary. Um, That's most visible um, in the case of uh, Garland with the Supreme Court justice, but we've really been fighting this battle for a very long time at the circuit court level, the intermediate court of appeals. They're extraordinarily important, um, but the Senate has been extremely obstructionist um, about appointees to the bench at that level um, for a very long time. 
Partially, the Senate has made some reforms to make it easier to get uh, nominees through when the Senate and the president um, are of the same party. That wound up benefiting uh, Donald Trump during his administration. Um, it benefits uh, Joe Biden now. But that doesn't solve the problem. What do you do when the Senate and the president are in um, opposite hands? Um, and that's going to remain a problem at the at the uh, circuit court level. It's going to be a problem in the future um, at the Supreme Court level. Um, and I really think if you're going to think seriously about term limits, for justices, in some ways, the deeper problem um, is the confirmation problem. One thing about the nature of, of American constitutional design um, is that when the founders are drafting the Constitution in 1787, they're hoping for um, a political system that doesn't emphasize political parties, um, and they largely are designing a system that assumes that um, you don't have that kind of factional disagreement in play. That affects things like um, how they imagine presidential elections looking, um, and so uh, they set up up a system in which the vice president is simply the runner-up um, in the presidential election, uh, which might make sense in a world without parties, but makes absolutely no sense in our world. Um, and they wind up having to change that um, through the 12th Amendment in order to account for the fact that we're going to have running mates uh, for vice president because parties are reality. That also has consequences, though, for things like judicial appointments. Um, uh, we have not had a similar constitutional amendment to the 12th Amendment that has incorporated parties um, explicitly into the constitutional system and anticipating how it is judicial confirmations are going to work. And we continue to struggle with what that looks like. If we are designing a constitutional system from scratch, I think we'd have to grapple with the fact um, that there's going to be uh, political parties that are going to organize our politics. We'd have to grapple with the fact that that means there's sometimes going to be divided government uh, between the Senate um, and the White House. Um, and I think that would uh, make us think differently um, about what a, a reasonable confirmation process looks like um, in order to fill the judiciary, but also probably uh, in order to fill the executive branch as a whole. I lean a little bit toward even thinking that if you want to keep the Senate in the process at all of confirmations, uh, maybe the right thing to do is actually lower the confirmation threshold so that you go back to part of the founders' concerns of saying, uh, well, what if the president makes a really lousy choice? The Senate ought to be some quality control on that. Um, but we might think quality control can be accomplished with, for example, 40 senators um, agreeing to something. On the other hand, what we have now is not only quality control, um, of don't put somebody on the bench who um, doesn't uh, belong there at all. Um, but we also have uh, fundamental political disagreements about how uh, the law ought to be interpreted, what those kind of officials ought to do in a world of partisanship. It's it's hard even to get simple majorities on that, let alone uh, super majorities. I don't think there's a really good solution, actually, to how we uh, do that, but I think it really focuses our attention. We need to think fresh and from the ground up. Um, about what the confirmation process um, ought to look like, what the overall appointments process um, looks like for filling uh, certainly the judicial branch, but I think the executive branch as well, probably. Well, let's turn to chapter four, the court's rule in the constitutional system. The chapter examines three main proposals to curb judicial power, including one, stripping the Supreme Court and other federal courts of jurisdiction to hear certain kinds of cases, Two, imposing supermajority voting requirements or requiring courts to give deference to legislative judgments about constitutionality. And three, authorizing congressional overrides of judicial decisions striking down legislation. Tara, you've written powerfully about the history of court curbing efforts. What does that history teach us about the wisdom and viability of these three proposals? And what's your position on the proposals? The running theme for jurisdiction stripping and supermajority requirements um, and 
a constitutional amendment to allow Congress to override Supreme Court decisions has been that our country has rejected them time and again. When when one political party has proposed such measures, the other political party has tended to fight back. And in our in our system that requires supermajority for legislation, it turns out to be really hard to enact. There have been a few jurisdiction stripping proposals that have have been enacted over the years, but really very, very few. And I, I think people don't actually contemplate just how how difficult it is to get these things through. I think a lot of people understand it, it's difficult to enact a court packing or court expansion measure, but it's pretty hard to get jurisdiction stripping as well. So I think that's an important point to realize from from our history. There's there's a lot of fighting that goes over over the on this. In terms of what it would do, Chapter 4 deals with a set of proposals that, if, if enacted, would be designed to reduce the power of the federal judiciary in a lot of areas. If you take away jurisdiction, then these are issues the federal, federal judiciary cannot decide. If the Supreme Court cannot strike down legislation unless a supermajority of the Supreme Court agrees to do that, then that's going to allow potentially federal legislation to stand that even five or maybe even six justices think is unconstitutional, or depending on how the supermajority requirement worked, potentially allow state legislation to stand, even though five justices or six justices think that the state legislation is unconstitutional. If there was a constitutional amendment that said Congress could override Supreme Court decisions, that would also reduce the power of the federal judiciary. And I am sympathetic in, as a general theoretical matter to reducing the power of the federal judiciary and increasing the power of the political branches. That's just where I come down. I'm not sure jurisdiction stripping is a w- great way to do it. Um, I'm more in favor of, this, of the Supreme Court itself adopting modes of deference, expanding the scope of rational basis scrutiny, keeping things like Chevron deference, which is now extraordinarily controversial, as it turns out. Um, so th- that's my own view on, on deference. But the idea of deference is very appealing to me. What I think is interesting is how how little the legal community in recent years has has favored deference. Whether one talks to progressives or one talks to libertarians or one talks to conservatives, everyone wants the federal judiciary to be doing something. They want them to be doing different things, but they want them to be doing a lot and really radical things, actually. One of the things that struck me over the past several months is that there's been a lot of talk about Texas's um, SB8 legislation, and um, and which is, looks like it's going to be replicated in Alabama uh, fairly soon. And I think there's a lot of reason to focus on that legislation. But it's interesting to me that some of the same people that were worried about Texas's legislation were also talking favorably about things like jurisdiction stripping and supermajority requirements. And the two don't really make a lot of sense together, because if one is worried about a state legislature attacking federal constitutional rights, then presumably one would want to stop jurisdiction stripping measures, stop supermajority requirements, um, and enhance the power of judicial review, because only then are you going to have a federal judiciary that is going to come in and stop a state like Texas. Thank you so much for that. There was so much in that rich answer. And Keith, I'll ask you about several of the points. First, Tara noted that historically, there have been only a few successful jurisdiction stripping efforts. The report notes that after the Civil War, Congress enacted a law depriving the Court of Appellate Jurisdiction over a pending habeas case, which was upheld in Ex parte McArdle. During the New Deal, there was a small spate of legislation restricting the jurisdiction of the federal courts 
in the 30s primarily to limit the remedies lower courts could issue for violations of the law, but these are the exceptions. And then Tara notes that there's little support across the board for deference, although that tradition of bipartisan judicial deference embodied by Holmes and Frankfurter and Brandeis and Byron White was in ascendant when I went to law school. Tara accurately says that but neither side consistently seems to favor deference today. Your response to the jurisdiction stripping proposals in the report, your sense of what history teaches us about them, and your sense of whether or not we should revive the tradition of bipartisan judicial deference. Yeah, so just starting with jurisdiction stripping, we should be clear as to what we're talking about exactly, because it is a a relatively esoteric uh, reform, uh, not as well known as something like uh, court packing that people intuitively understand and has been talked about more in public. Um, But jurisdiction stripping really involves removing uh, certain kinds of issues and as a consequence, a whole set of cases uh, from the jurisdiction of uh, potentially the Supreme Court specifically, or maybe the federal courts more generally, and not allowing those courts to hear those um, sets of, of cases. Um, one of the real complications and one reason why uh, there we have not had much more jurisdiction shipping over time is that if you take those kinds of proposals seriously as a solution, it's not enough to be mad at the Supreme Court um, and, and think the Supreme Court's uh, getting some things wrong uh, because what you're doing um, with those kinds of provisions um, is leaving those cases in uh, some lower court, whether it's the lower federal courts um, or leaving them in the state courts. Um, and it's generally the case that uh, Congress has not... Uh, maintain very much enthusiasm for the idea of we ought to have lots of cases involving federal questions resolved uh, in the state courts with no capacity for the federal judiciary to weigh in and get a a different answer. And so even if Congress thinks the Supreme Court um, is getting the wrong answer, sometimes they're not very inclined to think the state courts are going to be more reliable uh, from that perspective. And so tend to be pretty skeptical about these kinds of jurisdiction stripping measures in general. It's just a really blunt instrument for addressing the kinds of concerns people often have. It'd be a different question, I think, and there were and there were people um, in the early 19th century, for example, who really did take the view um, that they want the federal judiciary mostly out of these questions. They want a lot of autonomy uh, for the state courts to make their own decisions. Um, but that's a view that's very much out of favor, even more so, um, I think, than this kind of judicial deference uh, consideration that uh, had a lot of sway in the early and mid 20th century, for example. It's been even longer uh, since uh, very many people have been systematically in favor of the idea of uh, let's just let the state courts do what they want to do when it comes to interpreting the federal constitution, for example, um, and keep the federal courts uh, largely out of it. I I do think in general, there's just a lot of hypocrisy these days around the deference um, question. Uh, People want deference on the things that that they like. Um, They want activism on the things that they like um, as as well. And so uh, there's a lot of complaining when the court um, gets the wrong answer uh, from their perspective. But um, I don't think there's a lot of support in general for just having courts out of the way uh, in general. Tara pointed to uh, one of these uh, very interesting disagreements we're seeing right now over SB8 and and the abortion uh, rulings in general, where the Texas statute is precisely designed uh, to get the courts out of the way um, of abortion rulings. And some of the same people that were calling for more judicial deference um, are not at all enthusiastic um, about that way of of accomplishing uh, what they said they want, which is uh, courts out of the way um, and letting legislatures make policy in this particular area. When it comes to rights people uh, like, um, uh, they tend to want courts uh, in there aggressively enforcing them. Um, 
One of the things I suggested uh, in the commission, there was not much uh, uptake uh, for this idea, is we ought to take seriously the idea of uh, revising Article 5 um, of the Constitution. Article 5 is the um, provision of the U.S. Constitution that lays out the amendment process. Um, uh, it creates a fairly high hurdle um, uh, to adopting a constitutional amendment. Uh, one way of addressing this kind of uh, concern that people have that uh, gets framed in terms of legislative overrides, for example, allowing Congress simply to override um, what the court has done is to say it would all be easier for the political branches to amend the Constitution. So if you really disagree uh, with how the court is interpreting the Constitution, how the court has uh, laid out the set of constitutional rules um, that are going to guide the political process, uh, then you ought to empower the elected branches to more easily be able to craft new constitutional rules directly through a constitutional amendment process. Right now, that's very hard. Um, at the level of state constitutions, it's much easier. And so uh, we do see um, uh, legislatures uh, much more active in drafting new constitutional language um, and new constitutional rules. Um, and when they don't like uh, what it is their state courts um, are doing under state constitutions. And that's true in other countries as well, other countries uh, with written constitutions and uh, also tend to make it easier uh, for their legislatures to alter the text of those constitutions. Um, I, I do think Article 5 um, um, alteration would be consistent with the goals that people say that they want. Um, of giving more uh, political support here. Um, and it's a much more straightforward way of giving uh, elected officials a strong voice uh, in determining what kinds of constitutional rules we live under. Um, I think there are all kinds of practical problems uh, in the details um, if you instead uh, turn to something like uh, a supermajority rule for when uh, the court can strike down a law um, or some kind of leg legislative override procedure um, that would allow Congress to override a particular decision the court made through a simple resolution, for example. Well, our last chapter involves the Supreme Court's procedures and practices. There were three areas the commission discussed, and here there are some gentle uh, suggestions. Uh, on the first issue of the use of emergency orders, the commission suggests there might be some value to greater transparency, including giving reasons and clarity on precedential values when it comes to the so-called shadow docket. When it comes to a judicial code of ethics, the commission says it's not obvious why the court is best served by an exemption from what so many consider best practices, and perhaps the court should adopt a code of conduct. And on the question of cameras in the courtroom, the commission notes that uh, as an alternative, the court could continue its current practice of live streaming audio of oral arguments and, and talks about the value of that live streaming. Tara, what are your thoughts on those three issues and the commission's conclusions? Right. So I, I think this is the part where the report basically says, hey, Supreme Court, here's some ideas. Maybe you guys can think about it. The rest of the report is written for the political branches and the political process. This part says there, there are some things you could potentially do. And to my mind, um, having having live streamed oral arguments is kind of a no brainer. I, I don't understand why why this is controversial. Uh, I, I understand to some degree why cameras in the courtroom make some of the justices uncomfortable. Even though I've all, always been, I've always thought that more more transparency is probably better in that respect. And I have serious doubts that if every Supreme Court oral argument were televised on C-SPAN 12 or whatever, wherever it would be, that there would be tremendous attention paid to that, um, except by by folks like me and, and Keith and other folks who follow the court closely. Uh, but even if you don't have cameras, I think 
live streamed uh, over over the radio waves is is a great idea, and over over the internet is just an easy way to allow people to learn more about the Supreme Court. Judicial ethics also strikes me as something that should not be terribly controversial. The idea that we expand the rules that already apply to the lower federal courts to the Supreme Court seems like a pretty easy reform. Um, and I, it's, it's actually striking to me how complicated that has been historically. I did some work uh, for one project on norms of judicial independence, where I read the debates from around the 1950s to the 1980s of what became the, the Judicial Reform Act that actually governs the lower federal courts. And in those debates, members of Congress actually did propose having the same rules applied to the U.S. Supreme Court. And there was a lot of pushback in Congress about that, um, a lot of concerns that this would somehow interfere with the separation of powers. And I think that's a, another example of how the political branches have actually protected the Supreme Court, but I think it's probably undue protection. The piece of the report that I think is is the hot topic, at least in, in Chapter 5, is the, is the Supreme Court's emergency docket, which has become to be known as the shadow docket. Now, this, this is a, a docket that has existed for a very long time. I think that there's, there, there's some thinking among my students and, and other folks that this is a new thing. Suddenly, the Supreme Court is issuing emergency orders. No, they've been issuing emergency orders for a very long time. And of course, they have to because emergencies arise, whether it's in capital cases or other cases where pe- First Amendment cases where people need an injunction right now in order for things to matter. And it's interesting to me that the shadow docket has become so controversial. And I think it's just that the Supreme Court has been issuing prominent decisions, uh, particularly during the pandemic, uh, through the, through the sh- shadow docket that have gotten a tremendous amount of attention. Whether it needs to be reformed, I think the Supreme Court itself should probably do as little as possible through emergency order. Um, when it has a major issue involving religion, um, with respect to COVID restrictions, or issues re- with respect to the right to terminate a pregnancy, there are usually ways to move it to the regular docket and to move pretty quickly on the regular docket, as we saw with the Texas SB8 litigation. I think that's probably the best way for the Supreme Court to handle its its emergency docket um, when it has something that really deserves a merits review, to give it that merits review. And that might be a way of reforming the system without actually reforming our current rules. Keith, the last word in this very rich discussion is to you. What are your thoughts on the commission's recommendations about judicial ethics, audio broadcasts, and most controversially, the shadow docket. I think there are some fairly modest reforms that the court could take on um, itself. I think it would be most reasonable for the court to take on uh, some of those reforms themselves. Um, There are some suggestions that Congress could impose uh, some of these uh, things on the court, and and I think that's a much more problematic um, idea. These these go to questions about how uh, an independent branch of government um, internally operates, and and I think most of that should be decided um, by the justices uh, themselves, and I think the commission report offers 
some reasonable options. Um, I, I do think that the uh, possibility of live streaming um, audio of oral arguments um, is a reasonable sort of compromise measure of creating a little more transparency uh, for the court without going um, all the way toward um, cameras uh, in the courtroom. Um, I am a little skeptical about what the um, uh, long-term implications would be um, of introducing uh, cameras into the courtroom. There's some um, justices, of course, I think have concerns uh, that they simply don't want to be that well known. Um, uh, they like their relative anonymity and um, having cameras would uh, alter that dynamic. Um, I'm even more concerned though about whether it simply change uh, the behavior of justices over time uh, to have cameras in the courtroom. Um, I think one thing we've experienced with the rise of C-SPAN, uh, which has been uh, useful in lots of ways, but I think it does change behavior of how uh, legislators behave on the floor um, of, of Congress if they're um, under the eyes of a camera and you worry that justices might also uh, change their behavior in ways that are not so attractive if they were playing to an audience through video uh, feed in a way that I think probably is, is much less true when it comes to audio feed. Often, I think it's very attractive to think more transparency is good. And I would will say that the, probably the one thing in which there'd be unanimous agreement on the part of all the commissioners um, on the Supreme Court Commission is that the Federal Advisory Committee Act, uh, which is a transparency uh, statute aimed at uh, presidential advisory commissions like, like this commission, um, are problematic. And so the Federal Advisory Committee Act um, really tied the hands of how the commission could work because it had lots of transparency requirements about what kinds of deliberations can be done behind closed doors and what kinds of deliberations um, had to be done um, in public. And that made it really hard for the commission actually to do its work. Um, we'd be better off <laughs> as a country um, if we didn't have uh, that kind of transparency, actually, I think, on, on how a commission like this uh, works. And so I don't, I don't think we should always be very quick to jump to the conclusion uh, that more transparency is always better uh, for how these institutions work. Uh, sometimes there's some real virtue um, in not being uh, quite that transparent. Thank you so much, Tara Lee Grove and Keith Whittington, for being so transparent about your service on the Supreme Court Commission. Thank you for that service, and thank you for a rich and illuminating discussion. Uh, Tara, Keith, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. Thanks, appreciate it. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Kevin Kilburn. Research was provided by Sam Desai and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week, read the Supreme Court Commission report. It's deep and detailed, and there's lots to learn. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's hungry for constitutional illumination and debate. And please consider donating to the We the People crowdsourcing campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar you give toward We the People will be doubled with a generous match up to $234,000. As I said, we have donations now from 24 out of the 50 states, but we are looking for donations from Alabama, Alaska, or Arkansas. So if you're a listener in one of those states, we'd be so grateful for a donation of $5, $10, or more. And this is an amazing opportunity to show your support of constitutional education. Please go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people. That's all one word, all lower the case. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.